Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And we are joined today by Natalie Martinek. Did I pronounce it right, Natalie Martinek? Yeah, Martinek. Okay, yeah. excellent. Um, Natalie writes on Substack. She does other things, too, and she's going to tell us about that. But um, she writes a Substack blog called Hacking Narcissism. And as you all know, listening, I am intensely interested in narcissism. And what keeps me coming back, what catches my eye about Natalie's writing is that she she writes a lot on, I tend to focus, my approach tends to be looking, the first stage of the lens tends to be actual personality disorders, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, etc., what I like about Natalie's approach, which is slightly different from mine, is that she talks a lot about not not people necessarily with personality disorders, but the fact that all of us have narcissistic traits, that we can all get into narcissistic kinds of relationships and relational styles, um, that this is something for all of us to be responsible for. It is not simply that well, there's a certain percentage of people who have narcissism and the rest of us have no narcissism at all. Is is that a fair regurgitation of, of, of where you're coming from, Natalie? Absolutely. Yeah, well said. Okay. Well, um, we didn't do any prep for this. Uh, we're going in cold, so you're going to educate me and you're going to educate the, uh, the listening audience as well. Tell us about you. What do you do? Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, so I call myself a narcissism hacker. So what that means is I help people not only um, strategically deal with interpersonal narcissism or relational narcissism that's playing out in whatever relationships in their life by um, analyzing the interactions that occur between themselves and someone else that um, displays a dominance type of hierarchical relationship where the person who comes to see me is on the receiving end of it. They don't believe they're the dominant one. And I help them become aware of the the traits that they've uh, that they use to contribute to uh, forming this type of relationship that we all unconsciously do. So, in order for us to create change in our relational dynamics, we need to address some of those uh, tendencies to enter into a relationship as a passenger or more passive, more passively, um, or the opposite dominating, leading, controlling, that is leading to some problems. So that's basically what I do with people, mainly with those who are suffering in their workplaces. Um, a lot of execs, a lot of medical practitioners. And I also work with some workplaces uh, consulting around the similar, similar okay, so, issues. So you have, a, you have a consulting practice. That's, that's yeah. how you engage in this professionally. Yeah. Yeah. That's one aspect. The other aspect is I do a lot of work um, with services who work with young families in the mm -hmm. early years to also work in a relational way. So all my work is about relationships and cultivating relationships that are mutually beneficial, um, especially with those who are disadvantaged or uh, you know, have the vulnerable title or have been excluded from systems and services or have okay. disengaged because of distrust. Gotcha. Okay. Um, this is a question that asks for a description. There is no implied judgment. What's your educational background? 
So I, yeah, my background, I was a scientist, uh, still am, but not in a lab. Life is my lab. So I trained uh, in developmental biology and systems biology and then moved into cancer biology research and studied uh, tumor invasion and metastasis and then became more interested in what's happening interpersonally because of some of the toxic stuff I was experiencing and witnessing in my institution. That was going to be my next question. What uh, what makes it? Everybody asks me the same question about my uh, my. Uh, oh, I was going to say path, and then I would have had to slap myself because that's one of those HR words these days. My journey, my path. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, what what um, what got you from the biological sciences to um, focusing more on personal psychology and and uh, group psychology? Hmm. Well, when I entered biology as a naive, you know, finished undergrad, um, it was, you know, I was interested in finding the truth of what is behind suffering. And even though I studied fruit flies and embryonic development in fruit flies is pretty far away from that. Um, you know, I just felt biology was going to be some sort of answer. And then when I moved to Australia and began uh, in a cancer research lab, which is a very different environment to just your basic biology uh, setting, um, there's more pressure and stress. I started to see the impacts of that pressure and stress on people's behavior and how I was experiencing that environment and what it did to me. Um, you know, I started to emulate the behaviors of that I was seeing in the environment that I was totally judging and hating. Um, so the leap from biology to behavior uh, was more like understanding, you know, as I was studying how tumors invade and metastasize within an organism, um, co-opting environmental factors for its, you know, um, ability to take over the organism, basically, I was seeing a parallel of behaviors kind of metastasizing around the institution and seeing some just, yeah, not great stuff. So that led to an ethical crisis for me, and I had to leave and move into something quite different. Um, and the rest of my life has been very much kind of surprised at the things, that, the places I um, would go into, the things I've been interested in, and then it all came together. So understanding human suffering is really about our relationships from my perspective. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there's the personal stuff, the societal factors, the social determinants of health, but we live in an ecology, an interpersonal ecology where everything influences us and we influence as well all the thing, all the people and, and things around us. So that's become my my focus, understanding how our, um, our relationships contribute not only to our psychological experiences, but physical experiences, how they also manifest in physical symptoms. Yes. Um, and that's, yeah. So that's what I've been doing since then. Excellent. Would you, um, would you say, and if you would say no, say no. Um, but would you say that one of the dominant uh, environments or ecological environments, if you want to describe it that way, that we find ourselves interacting in today is social media. Um, okay. And I'm guessing you will probably also agree um, that the ecological environment of social media is almost, if you did not know better, you would say it was designed to foment and bring out narcissistic behaviors. What do you think well, about that? 
Yeah. Let me, let me think about that for a second. So designed to foment and I don't, um, I don't mean that it was actually designed. I mean, it, 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 it works so perfectly. It seems to me that it's structures. I don't think anyone designed social media to do this. I'm not imputing mm. intent. Uh, I'm saying um, it strikes me that it is very easy. And I do not exclude myself from this. I am one of the people who is affected this way by social media. Um, but it seems to me that it is very easy in social media to go from zero to 11 in five seconds or less uh, in terms of confrontational attitudes, um, um, overbearing, dominating behaviors um, uh, that that uh, I see an experience both in myself and in other people. Um, very, let me turn it around. Let me do it another way. The kinds of conversations that I'm interested in having, I think a lot of people could pr probably say this as well. If we were all sitting around in person, in the flesh, there were five or six of us sitting around a table at a bar or at a restaurant, the cup of coffee. Let's leave alcohol out because uh, alcohol can do things too. Uh, let's just say we're all having coffee with each other. Um, we could talk about a number of very weighty political, social, psychological subjects and probably um, go on for two or three hours as a group of five or six people and rock us back and forth. And everybody could probably leave feeling like that was an invigorating conversation and probably also feeling like they were among uh, people who are not enemies, you know, people of goodwill and good faith. But if you take those same five people and you start that conversation on Twitter or on Facebook, and yeah, maybe it's me, maybe it's just me. Um, but it seems to me the likelihood of that going, getting, becoming fractious, and um, it is is just is just much higher. I don't know how it looks to you. Yeah, I would agree. Um it's very easy to forget that you're talking to another human um, behind your keyboard, um, you know, that so you lose yourself into the experience, the algorithms, I do think enhance, uh, you know, or shows us some very negative behavior because it tends to, you know, polarizing, polarizing commentaries and tends to attract a lot of attention. Um, so we're seeing this stuff more often unless you are really good at curating your feed and you can weed out all the hot topics, controversy, and you just have, you know, animals on your feed and jokes, <laughs> dad jokes or something. Right. So yeah, which I would expect would take a lot of effort and time and uh, yeah, not really great. So yeah, I do, I do agree with you that, that um, it does enhance, it does gamify narcissism because yeah, for people who like the attention, they get the dopamine hit, and we all do. Uh, yeah. But some people who need it more rely on it more. They're gonna, they're gonna be part of it, and not necessarily see themselves playing that out. Yeah, I think. And again, um, others, listeners, you, Natalie, other people will have to judge this. Um, I can only be inside my own head. It's going to look different to an outsider. But um, I, so I don't know how much of this is projection. Some of it surely is. Um, I have been thinking about 
why it is that for me, it is so easy to get into a fractious dispute with somebody on social media very quickly. Um, I'm very, very prone to this. Um, And I think, I don't know how, I'm sure this is operational for some other people. I don't know how many others. What, asking myself, why is that? What what expectations am I bringing into social media that are predisposing me um, to end up behaving this way? And for me, um, I think my general attitude, my general disposition and stance that I carry with me into social media is one of armor up and be on the defense and be constantly scanning the near horizon for enemies. You know, whether or not one thinks that's a wise or unwise disposition to bring in, I think that's the disposition that I'm bringing in. I think that's the stance I'm bringing in. Um, What do you think? hmm, What do you think about that? And and how applicable do you think that might be uh, to some of these dynamics? Yeah, I think our expectations of what we're going to experience online will shape, of course, how we approach our interactions online. And I would wonder, you know, is this because you've had such negative interactions as well as positive ones because you keep coming back? Um, That that's the approach you've learned to have to take and just assume that people are going to assume in you bad faith and they're going to attack. And so you've got to be on guard and ready to spot the enemies. Um, whereas if we were to slow down our interactions online and seek to understand the authors of a post perspective, instead of the assumptions that we're going to, uh, you know, in the immediately trigger because we're triggered um, by something someone said, or anticipating that they're going to come across in an aggressive or attacking way. Um, we're ready heightened. We're ready prepared for war. So, um, yeah, it's an attitude that we bring that can influence our interactions. So we're looking for the enemy. We're already, that's where our focal point is, trying to find them um, and identify them and respond to them and, you know, remove them if we need to um, versus, okay, I'm going in, I'm going to, my assumptions are going to be triggered because we're lacking nonverbals. We can't see uh, what the other yeah. person is implying. We're making a whole bunch of assumptions. We're doing all our mental shortcuts to just feed this this need and um, the drama that we all love. We all love drama. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, I think that would make a difference. I, I I wonder sometimes if 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 we we collectively as humans, if we can approach social media dif- uh, differently enough to make it uh, in general a better and less fractious, fractious experience. I'm not sure that I think we can do an awful lot. I may be wrong about that, uh, but it seems to me that in in a in a medium where you get no physical feedback, you don't see their facial expressions, you do not hear their tone of voice, you you can't you you can't judge how long they're pausing between things as you can when you're listening to someone speak. We, as you said, we get none of those real world cues back. All we get is is what's typed back to us. And so much of of what makes up whole human communication is 
is missing and cannot be introduced into that space. It's structurally impossible. Uh, it makes me wonder if the format itself is so limited that it's just not going to be a lot better than it is. Yeah, I think we can all do our bit knowing, you know, what we've just discussed, that we have a tendency to be triggered, to be um, get defensive. So knowing yeah. that, that would take a bit of effort on our part to go, why do I need to be triggered? Why do I need to be right? Why do I get offended or reactive? People are just going to say stupid shit. And right. <laughs> um, I don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to have any, it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. <laughs> it's them. It's them and their, the way they're turning up. I don't have to match them, but we do that. We end up marrying each other um, because we're trying, we're in a power, you know, power battle. Who's going to yeah. win? Who's going to be more right? Who's going to, you know, gain clicks and lights and likes and clout as a result of this. And I don't know if that's going to be, that's the driving factor, but it does help. Um, yeah. Yeah. Perpetuate that kind of interaction. When you, um, what is, what might be, a, do you have a, a toy example, a go-to model or example that you, or a hypothetical, uh, that you use to describe, uh, to introduce to people, okay, so what, if you've got a group of professionals, if you've got a workplace, if you've got a, for lack of a better word, a community, an interest community who is working on a shared project, um, do you have sort of a model of how that those group dynamics can go wrong as a result of narcissistic interactions, even if those are unknown consciously to the participants while it's going on yes so um do i have a model so you have a bunch of people coming together to take part in a project uh you know there's an assumption of shared purpose and values um but it's not always explicit you know we might say yeah this is what we want these are the things that we're trying to produce these are the tasks you know subdivided um if there's no clear leader then somebody is going to make themselves the leader because humans like to default into a hierarchy. That's just the mm -hmm. way we are. It's if, if we look where we came from, our families, families are hierarchical unless uh, the parents are very conscious about, you know, their uh, ideal makeup of a family and interactions. And they, you know, I think it's rare because there's the authority figures, the parents, the caregivers, and lots of parents are going to parent in a way that, maintains a hierarchical parent-child dynamic, even as the children grow into adults and we're now all adults together, they're still being treated often as children. Um, mm -hmm. So, and this is general. So this yeah. is our blueprint of relationships. So we tend to seek out the authority figure in the room. And some people who have stronger narcissistic tendencies, um, we'll say higher end of tendencies, Yep. If they don't trust the authority and they don't believe the authority can lead the group in the way that they envision, then they tend to step into the role of the authority and take over and become bossy. And everyone else stratifies into this hierarchy according to uh, who wants to be in proximity to the leader. So you'll yep. get the leader, you'll get their allies, and you'll get those who you know are further down and then the enemy in the group, the one who's going to be seen as the scapegoat or the one getting in the way of not producing the results that they, you know, we want. Um, so that's the kind of extreme 
example of what happens when you have a seemingly group of peer, uh, equal, equal peers uh, without any um, discussion about the power in the room um, and putting things in place to safeguard against this default tendency we have to move into hierarchy. You're going to end up with that sort of situation. Makes sense. Let's talk about let's talk about hierarchy a little more specifically. Um, there's there's two things that jumped out at me from what you just said, uh, and I hope we can talk about both of them. One is I, I do want to talk a little bit more specifically about hierarchy and and figure out what you think about it, its value, um, and its discontents. What I think about its value and its discontents, but also what you just described strikes me as very similar to what I say the thesis of of the show Disaffected is. And uh, again, this is general. Um, and it, 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 it's a model. I'm not, I'm not saying it is specific. It specifically tracks in every particular detail. But the basic model that I think of and is the hypothesis of the show is that as in the home, so in society, that what we are seeing now currently, and perhaps we have always seen this to some degree, I don't know, I haven't been around forever, um, is that dysfunctional, abusive, misleading, emotionally taxing, toxic family behaviors that fall into the cluster B narcissistic personality range of of affect and 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 relational style that often animate what we call domestic abuse and child abuse or severely dysfunctional families it, that in fact the exact same thing is going on at societal scale now uh to to a very high pitch so it's it seemed it sounded to me like how you were describing this sort of dovetails the way I look at it and present it on the show that's also how I talk about the origin of relational narcissism or interpersonal narcissism all starts in our family, our parent-child dynamics, good, bad, are blueprints for our, their templates for our relational patterns. And if two people aren't coming together intentionally, consciously to cultivate a mutually respectful, beneficial, reciprocal relationship, we're just going to default to a hierarchical yeah. relationship. That's just how it is. Yeah. That that's what we learned when when our brains were being <laughs> when we were soft plastic that hadn't yet set in the mold. <laughs> <laughs> we were just jiggly things, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So we're on the same page about that. Okay. Hierarchy. Um, hierarchy it, it seems to be a concept in dispute for a lot of people. People have they feel ways about hierarchy. Um, some people I've noticed, again, generally. There's going to be big exceptions to this. Some people are uh, seem to me to be very pro-hierarchy. They believe that one of our failings in modern society and business and public life is that we do not have positive and clear hierarchies in places where we used to have them, and that rudderlessness is contributing to our malaise. If you take the other extreme on that end of opinion, um, there are quite a number of people who seem to me to believe that the that hierarchy itself is ipso facto bad right it is intrinsically bad it is never good and it is by definition toxic and negative um th those are two extremes right a, a lot of people fall in the middle um i would say i am more of a hierarch 
how would I say hierarchist? <laughs> I don't know. The file. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, it's I I wouldn't put myself at the extreme, but I would say I am further on the end of the spectrum that believes that um, there is there are many necessary places for hierarchy and that hierarchy is appropriate in those places. Um, and that we have much less of it than we actually need, and that's leading to some of our problems. But that's going to depend on how every individual defines hierarchy. And and I'm when I say hierarchy, I don't mean in every situation there must be a most powerful and least powerful person because that's what God, nature, the universe intends. I am not making that claim. The kind of hierarchy that I believe is positive is a hierarchy in which people are people's duties are sorted according to their actual skills and talents that they are put right so there are people in any situation who i believe well it's obvious that jill should be leading this project not me because jill has done this 16 times before she's made all the mistakes and she also knows how to manage people who are helping her do that project i don't want to be the leader here i want a hierarchy with jill at the top Right. Based on Jill's demonstrated merit and also based on the fact that the rest of us don't have Jill's skills. Right. That's the kind of hierarchy that I think is what What do you think about hierarchy? How would you describe your orientation to that? Yeah. Well, when I was in hierarchy, because every, you know, educational, higher learning, grad school, research environments, uh, workplace institutions. So they're all hi- structured as high as hierarchies. And because of my negative experiences there, I used to be like hierarchy shit. It's, you know, but what I've come to realize over the years is hierarchy is necessary in, you know, society in different I- environments. I'm thinking education. I'm thinking, um, yeah, different workplaces, but it's been corrupted because you've had people put into positions of power where they abuse their power or misuse their power and they don't have the competence to be able to do the job which is why they're abusing the power they're not able to go hey these are my limitations i need support to be able to grow into this role so rather than take an honest approach because they don't feel like they're safe to do that they're gonna play out these different roles um you know delegate tasks to people who are competent but lower on the you know the, the corporate ladder or in, in the team um, and to do all sorts of things to cover up this insecurity and, and, and incompetence um, or, de- you know, lack of skill. So, yeah, I do believe hierarchy is necessary and it doesn't imply that someone has more power. They just have different responsibilities to be able to achieve a particular goal um, and a purpose of a team and organization, what have you. Um, but like I said, it's been corrupted. So it's makes us think hierarchy is awful um, and that we should seek equality, only equality. <laughs> and here we go. Look at society. Yeah, here we go. Look at society right now. And I'm all for equality, but it's understanding that we all bring different things. We are all unique. Yeah. And not everyone who has a PhD is going to be able to fulfill certain expectations because they somehow have a higher degree than other people on the team. We have to look at pool our skill sets and in order to see who are, who are the best people to perform specific duties to contribute to the desired outcome. Yeah, yeah. that that question of it, it, it and you know and everything is so mixed up these days that I I feel like every time I have a conversation like this we need to stop 
maybe we do need to stop and define our terms. Um, I was just writing about that the other day about how important it is, um, in my view, uh, when people are going to enter a serious conversation, they really need to step one is reconciling definitions. Um, I see a lot of pitched battles and very emotional, very angry exchanges between people who believe that they disagree fundamentally on really core principles. And I don't believe they actually do. I think why they're fighting is because they're using the same words, but different definitions. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. That's core to my work as well. Not making assumptions that just because we say the word hierarchy, that it means the same thing to both of us. We need to spend some time going, okay, right. what do you mean? And how does that connect to how I think of it? And then we could be on the same page and then have more of a productive conversation. But like we were talking about before in social media, we don't go through that. We're just making assumptions about what the other means, what I mean. Yes. And we're never on the same page. We're having these constant parallel, you know, arguments. Um, but we may fundamentally agree on, you know, what it what it's what it means at its core and why it's important. But we don't get there. We're too busy trying to be right and overpower the other with our with our superiority. Yeah, and well, and equality is one of those words I think that needs careful definition, uh, like hierarchy does. Um, it's a very common word. It's There's our lexicon these days. I mean, how often do we hear words like equality, equity, um, uh, merit, meritocracy? Um, these these are all part of our modern lexicon, um, but I think that they are they're too lightly used and very very often not ever defined. So what does equality mean, right? What do we mean when we say equality? I think in the West, generally in public conversation, people think of equality as a positive word. That's a happy word, right? That means a good thing. Hmm. Okay, for me, that's not good enough. I need to know specifically what it means. I don't care whether you think it's good. I don't care what you feel about it. I want to know exactly what you believe it means. Um, so there's a tension between many of us, many, many people of good faith, goodwill, would say things like, uh, we should be striving for equality. Now, that sounds that sounds nice on the surface, but it actually says nothing. It's an empty statement. It has no content, no meaning whatsoever. Um, what might we actually mean? And when you dig down into that, I think there are, again, broadly, probably two camps and, and points along the middle, but we can very easily identify the two extremes. There are people who appear to believe that equality is a per se good thing. Um, and what that means is that all people have the same level of privilege to make moves in society. No one is entitled to more. No one is deprived of anything. No one has a higher claim to resources or property or intellectual property than another person. And if we have any any disparity between two people where one person has, you know, has a, a higher claim to something or can say, I have ownership in in this intellectual property, this physical property, that 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 the existence of that disparity is itself a sign of evil and dysfunction. 
and it also seems to me that there are other ways to define equality. Well, let, let me ask you to react to that. Do you see that uh, that use of equality as well, or do you see it differently? I see that use of equality as well. And as you're speaking, I was thinking about, well, what is the thing you're saying, you know, equal measure of different things? And then I'm like, what are those things that are have value? Because it seems like when we're talking about equality, it's about things that we value, that we should each have the same amount of, for example. Um and I find that to be problematic because everything we value comes from a financial frame, something okay. to do with money. And we need to all be able to distribute wealth. But there's so many different types of wealth. I may not have the financial, you know, the bank account that uh, someone else has, but I might have wealth and, you know, wisdom and uh, understanding about how to apply certain things in life to navigate life and get through things very a lot more smoothly than the person who's got the you know very big bank account. So how do we have equality of these different types of wealth? It it doesn't make sense to me. So the way I see equality, so I don't know. So that's my reaction to what you're saying. The way I see equality is understanding what we each bring that you know the different things we have um that are necessary to fulfill a particular purpose. I tend to think of purposefulness and so when I enter into collaboration, for example, I need to remind myself, what are the things that I know? What are the things that I've demonstrated that I can do very well and consistently? And they need to do the same. And we need to bring them both to the table and be quite explicit about it and work out who's going to do what and how much of the things are we each going to do. And even though someone might do 70 and I might do 30, the fact is I can't do more than the 30 because I don't have the competence or skill and it's going to delay what we're going to do. So the 70-30 would suggest inequality, but actually in order to produce the outcome, these are the that's the ratio that we need to be bringing together in order to produce the outcome and that we recognize that. And if there's some compensation, then that, that's, part of, that's part of that conversation as well, that the compensation will acknowledge all the things that we each brought in. Um, so I'm thinking... 70% of the writing for a, you know, a paper is done by the other person. I'm doing 30, but I'm doing all this other stuff as well that yeah. they're not doing. So yeah. we have to negotiate these things and determine what equality looks like to us and check in on it along the way to make sure that uh, you know we're not building resentment because, well, now I realize as a result of this project that we're working on that I've had to step up more here and they do less there. So if we don't have a conversation about it, I, you know, that might lead to some problems depending on how we relate with each other. So it is a constant negotiation versus this set thing that we have equality because of these different, you know, features um, that mainly deal with each other's wealth, financial wealth. Yeah, that all makes complete sense to me. Um, and I agree with it. It's um, it, the other sticking point or point of contention that almost always comes up in conversations about equality is the difference between people who um who favor a definition or an approach to equality that says equality of opportunity versus those who want equality of outcome right and those are very different things they're not at all the same they're really radically different philosophical approaches to what equality is. Yeah. Um, 
And there, it seemed there's a really big fight between those camps going on right now. I would say from where I sit that the, the, the idea that I disagree with, I personally do not believe that equality of outcome in most instances is either reasonable or realistic or necessary. Um, I used to believe that it was. I, I, I have radically different political and philosophical opinions than I did 10 years ago. Um, uh, but th- there are many people who you can't even get them past the starting post. They they are unwilling or unable to entertain that equality of outcome is not going to happen in, in many instances. It can't be made to happen. Um, and if it is forced to happen or clutched together, that it will come with very heavy costs imposed on participants that they may not be acknowledging, <laughs> but they won't like when they get there, right? Mm. How do you see yeah. that that battle of the idea of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome? Uh, yeah, I also, I agree with you there as well. We're not really disagreeing in this conversation when, so far. When, maybe we'll get to some when point When are we going to butt heads? Yeah. Yeah, I know. We'll get to some, I see what I hope for on Disaffected is we get to some point where you just say, God, you are such a snotty bitch, Josh. <laughs> well, we're not there yet. So no. let's push some buttons, would you? Um, so, or I can push some. Uh, the the equality of outcomes is not realistic um, because it depends on the individual and their ability to, um, you know, their ability. They have to be the ones to produce the outcomes with the supports that are there, and we can't control for that. You know, so you can create all these services. This is this is the societal thing. You know, we see there's a need in society. Uh, so we're going to dump a bunch of money into uh, building capacity of professionals to serve the community and that community in a particular way. Um, so they think putting money into services is going to is providing opportunity and that will lead to the, these desired outcomes. The problem is the service providers have to work with those individuals in order to achieve these desired outcomes. And the desired outcomes are determined by the service and the, you know, the funders. They're not yeah. necessarily determined by those on the receiving end, which is common, common in society. So we're going to come in and save you. And here's the money for us to do that. Look at us. We're, we're upskilled now. We can, we can help you. We haven't actually talked to you about who you are, what you like, what you need, uh, what's, what are your strengths, what's working for you. Um, so this is going to make us feel good that we're providing something uh, to tick off that equality or equity box. Um, but, you know, what ends up happening doesn't end up happening because we're not pooling again. We're not seeing the other person from a position of resourcefulness and we're just, Oh, you know, creating this this hierarchy. We're going to do to you, um, but we're going to assume that this is the approach we're t- that the right approach to be able to achieve these desired, you know, equity of outcomes. Um, yep. Whereas in an, a better situation is yes, we have professionals to, you know, try to achieve this outcome, this lofty outcome. But I need to find out from the other person I'm working with. I'm there to support what their needs are, what their priorities are. It might be quite different to you know what we're offering or what we think is important and mm-hmm. i need to learn from them to be better at what i have how i serve them and to support them to build their capacity to leverage the resourcefulness and resources they have in order to you know support them to grow into where they want to go which takes a hell of a lot longer than a lot of time frames for funding and our desire to you know 
you know, have these outcomes that, again, were never decided by the individuals that were tasked to help. So yep. that's how this is in my world. This is what I see um, in service mm -hmm. delivery land um, doesn't quite work because there's too many factors at play that that influence outcome versus the opportunity piece. Um, yeah. Great. This is a good spot for us to take a break for the listeners. We're going to take a little break, but we're going to come back on the other side. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com, or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. And we are back. You know, in talking about equality of outcome, equality of opportunity, uh, providing services, as, as you were talking about before, um, I, th I think this also brings up questions of entitlement, obligations that we have to other people, obligations that we don't have to other people, obligations that we think we have to other people or that we think other people have to us. Um, I think that our collectively, our idea of what we are obliged to do for other people and what they are obliged to do for us has gotten really out of whack. And I think that um, one of the major areas of disagreement, it seems to me, between people who would describe themselves as politically on the left as compared to politically on the right. And again, these are really clunky generalizations that can't capture everything, but we have to be able to talk. Mm -hmm. um, is that and I, and I'm as as I think you know because we've talked online and we've read each other's work. Um, you know, I'm somebody who was very firm was very firmly on the progressive left uh, for most of my life. Um, my political orientation now is radically different than what it was before. I'm no I no longer consider myself anywhere near a progressive. Um, or a leftist, um, that's going to mean different things. And uh, lots of people say this, whether they're saying it from my point of view or from the opposite point of view. Uh, mm -hmm. And people are going to hear left, right, and progressive to mean very, very different things. So I can't help that. But it seems to me that generally, those who would say they are on the left seem to believe that both that they are owed many more things than I believe that they are actually owed, and also, sometimes at the same time, believe that they themselves owe a duty of care to other people that I don't believe they've ever owed to other people. And I would say that 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 would be sort of the opposite of what you would find on someone who, you know, would say I'm more on the right. Does that make sense to you or do you see it differently? Well, let me check my understanding. So you're talking about um, the sense of entitlement and this owing, this obligation to um yeah, give or serve others to uplift them, to 
you know, be a give user platform so that they can have a voice, all all this kind of stuff that yes. we've been hearing, which are features of the left. And, um, you know, I've written about this as the social injustice warrior. Um, <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah. In the in attempt to, um, you know, bring justice to a person or a population uh, who's seen as oppressed or disadvantaged I, the savior, will step in and provide these things. I will give you my platform. I will, you know, because I've identified you as the oppressed and I've also identified the oppressor and I'm not, I'm not part of that class or maybe I am and I'm I the need savior. to, you know, give back. Yeah. So we enter into, you know, Cartman's dreaded drama triangle where there's the, you know, the victims, the sacred victims, as we've seen, um, yeah. the perpetrator, the persecutor, this automatically puts me as the rescuer or savior. Yes. So I've re- reimagined it just using different words of the oppressed, the oppressor and the savior. And so that I feel good about myself because I'm, you know, I'm uplifting you through my advocacy and my actions and my activism, but I may not have actually talked to you. I may not have actually found out about your story. I've read a lot about your people. So I'm going to make a whole bunch of assumptions about your oppression and what your needs are. And I'm going to step in. And that's an oversimplification. I don't want to sound, you know, insulting to those who are doing good work. But again, this has to be a partnership. It can't be, I'm going to come in as having more power. I'm making all these assumptions and I'm going to see you as less power according to my model. And then I'm going to try to bring some sort of balance, but the whole time I'm just dominating you. I'm still overpowering you because I'm using you for my own, to meet my own needs of for significance, for my own needs of feeling like I'm doing something good because I'm trying to fill some other void. So, um, and is that, is that not that I've seen? Yeah. Is that, is that not a way that narcissism manifests itself that we often don't recognize either in ourselves or in other people? Yeah. So it's trying to come from a good place. You could see the good intentions, but mm-hmm. that good, those good intentions can take over. And it's absolutely narcissism. This actually falls into the category of communal narcissism ah, where oh, you think about the white. <laughs> yeah, let's go. So the white saviors, for example, you know, these, yeah. you know, wealthy, uh, you know, white women, young white women who are quite idealistic would go to, you know, developing countries and adopt their, you know, population, their disadvantaged population and Madonna. Uh, build an orphanage or yeah, yeah. All that, <laughs> all that total saviorism. Yeah. It's not just white, but I think it, it exemplifies, you know, this, this um, framing around whiteness and coming into again, take over, dominate my ways, the highway, my ways, the better way I will teach you. Never mind that you're, you know, you've survived all these you know, millennia, but you're, you know, <laughs> your people have survived. You, you know what you're doing to survive. I'm not appreciating that. I'm just imposing my worldview on what success should look like. And I'm going to mm-hmm. uplift you so I can feel good. And then I'll leave you when I'm done, when I'm finished taking my Instagram photos and um, you'll have to deal with the mess that I've created, but I won't even think about that because I'll just keep going off thinking that I've done some some good deeds for you. And I think you can sometimes see, you can, sometimes that, because what you're talking about, Natalie, and you, you talked to, you're talking about communal narcissism, which, which is a, uh, a topic that. I like people to keep in mind it's it um i would define it as 
uh, rather than a, a sort of narcissistic interaction that's simply one-on-one, it's sort of a system, a social system of narcissistic behavior that revolves around the idea that you have a savior class of people, that you have a class of people who are in some way essentially morally elevated uh, and not to be criticized Um it, it 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 it's it's a slightly different flavor than your classic formulation of 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 direct interpersonal interpersonal narcissism and i i think you're right that you you get people who want to be the savior um and who disrespect the people that they are allegedly saving because they don't see actual agency and human subjectivity in those people to the degree that they have it for themselves right um yep. and they they, they are I think they are often unaware that they don't see this. It's not that they're, you know, they're like, oh, well, I know they're real people, but I'm going to pretend they're not because I'm just that mean, (laughs) right? I don't think most people are like that. No, I agree. But I think something else can happen in that dynamic too, which is that people can, those who see themselves as saviors, and yeah, I'm going to go with it, uh, white leftists in our era right now, white leftists in the United States at least, but I think probably more broadly in the West, um, love to see themselves as uplifting Black people or uplifting Indigenous or Aboriginal people or uplifting disabled people or whatever it is, right? Whoever whoever the, the marginalized, the alleged marginalized are. The saviors can and do act disrespectfully toward other people, but the those to be rescued, the marginalized, I think, have just as many sins to account for in this transaction. And the big one I see is quite simply taking advantage of people, taking advantage of people by creating yourself as a victim and saying, I am entitled. I am essentially, because I'm gay, I have an essential moral claim to your sympathy and your attention to my legislative priorities. It exists simply because of who I am. Uh, Nothing I do or say will ever take that privilege away from me. I cannot be stripped of it, right? And you can say the same thing in America right now. I think we've got this toxic, um, really, really broken relationship between white leftists and black Americans. You know, I I think that that is at the root of of what we call our race problems in this country. And I think both things are going on at the same time. I think we've got white saviors who aren't recognizing the agency and the capability of black people. But to the very same degree, just as bad, we have enormous swaths of black people who, frankly, are entitled, spoiled and believe that by dint of the fact that their ancestors were enslaved, that they are allowed socially to break rules and to demand other people's money, other people's attention, and other people's sympathy. And these two parties, the white savior and and the black to be saved, end up feeding each other, and it just gets a tighter and tighter and tighter circle. That's what I see anyway. Mm. Yeah, okay. So there's lots of narcissisms in what you've just described. So the communal narcissism isn't just one with many, it's also one-on-one. So you'll okay. see this with anyone who needs to be needed. So they go into nursing, they go into medicine, they go into you know therapeutic uh, modalities and professions, mental health professions, because they have this 
need to save. So it's always going back to a parent-child dynamic okay. where the therapist is the parent and they see this helpless child or they're, you know, putting the frame of helpless child in the way they see that person. They don't see them with agency and resourcefulness and strengths and all that in their wholeness, just in how I need to see you in order to fulfill my need to be needed. And mm -hmm. again, it's not something that is intentional. It's not, it's not, um, you know, obvious. There'll be a of course, a small percentage of people where it is intentional, um, but that that's the communal narcissism. And um, they've got the strong mission and they need to fulfill this mission. And, you know, and again, that comes from their own probably childhood woundedness of maybe caregiving for a parent. They were parentified at a young age for a parent that Hello. couldn't look after their emotional needs or themselves. So, yeah. So what we're seeing is this role reversal. So what you described with the white savior and the you know, um, black Americans that they're there to uplift, um, and the sort of playing, um, or, you know, relishing in a victimhood to take advantage of the handouts or the, the help or whatever is in that dynamic. That's the vulnerable narcissism or the covert narcissism of the so-called victims where they, yes. um, you know, totally are the ones in control. They're the ones in power here, but there's this perception from the savior that they're the stronger one. So it's <laughs> yeah. just messy, messy situation. And I've all, and it, when I, again, when I say white savior, it's not just white skin. It's, sure. a, it's in every many, many people. I see this among, you know, um, black medical professional professionals who mm -hmm. are, you know, first or even second generation, some are third generation where they feel like they need to give back to their community, but they didn't necessarily grow up with that community. They grew up in, uh. you know, privileged situation. So maybe there's some guilt. I, you know, there's other things going on um, where they want to be part of this, um, you know, uplifting their people. But it's, again, it comes across as the saviorism because they see themselves in a position of privilege um, and power, and they don't see uh, the, you know, they, again, they're putting a frame around um, a vulnerable group and treating them accordingly to their own needs. We're really a bunch of, you know, empty people walking around with like empty holes inside our souls, trying to fill them, fill it with all sorts of things. Um, and it cause it just manifests our, our different narcissisms. Yeah, it does. My ears really pricked up when you said uh parentified. Um, the parentified. Um, can you um it's a topic I've talked about before, but um tell tell us um Tell us your view of uh, parentification. Describe parentification between a parent and a child. Okay. I'll give my, yeah, my understanding of it. So you have children who are, you know, the ones with the needs. <laughs> and I mean, everyone has needs. But the parent um, is there to support the child, to meet their needs, to support their security, to be attuned, to be responsive, because uh, they're not independent. They don't have the cognitive capacity to work out, you know, life organization and, uh, you know, day-to-day -day routines. They rely on a, you know, an authority figure to be able to support them to grow and develop. But what can happen is you have a parent who is suffering from mental illness, um, just, you know, unable or addiction or any, any sort of thing where they're unable to meet their child's needs. And the child's like, fuck. If I don't, <laughs> if I don't step up here um, and do certain things like feed myself or, uh, you know, be with my parent and soothe my parent, yeah. um, 
I'm going to die. And again, that's not a conscious process, but it's no, but that's exactly what the child is thinking underneath. Yes. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a survival mode that you go into. Do you have any personal experience of that? Or is this something um, that you, that you, that you know, from working with other people? um, This is something personal, but not in an extreme. I think, you know, I'm sure my kids would say that about me where they've had to kind of soothe me or, you know, there Mm -hmm. was a role reversal where they were the mature one in the situation. Um, (laughs) Hopefully not recently, but you know, when working out this parenting gig, hard and you're dealing with your own traumas or whatever that surfaces. Yeah. It can't be your ideal self. Um, So yeah, I have my own, you know, my, my own experiences with parents in different ways. My father's children of a child of Holocaust survivors. So you can imagine um, that kind of upbringing and, um, and yeah, the needs that would not have been able to be met and the stunting, the emotional stunting that can occur. Um, So that would cause, you know, when certain behaviors would come out, I, as a child would have to do whatever I needed to do to soothe them so that I can be okay. So we enter into these role reversals every so often, but for some children that becomes a full-time gig. And so they, have to mature at a very young age. They don't get to, they don't get to experience the childhood. They're constantly parenting their parents' emotions and there's no room for their own emotions to be present. There's no room for them to be soothed. Um, And then the parent might compensate with these other, you know, overbearing types of or controlling types of um, behaviors, but they never see the child as the whole person. They see them as they're needed um, or the way that they haven't, um, done what the parent expected so you can't win you can't win in those situations. no you can't well you know it's incredible about that, that what you just said uh they don't see the child as a whole person you're i believe you're absolutely right but what's astonishing to me it it flashed on and uh disaffected listeners this is your drinking game i'm about to talk about my mother um <laughs> it's a joke among people who listen to the show can he get through one show where he doesn't say my mother the answer is no i cannot um <laughs> where's my drinks it, it is so interesting to me because th- that is something that that actually came out of my mother's house uh my mother's house my mother's mouth is as most people listening to this show know my mother is personality disordered and and I think most heavily in the borderline and narcissism range. So I was a classic parentified child, um, you know, from doing household chores. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but more household chores, cooking for the other children, uh, taking care of my mother, literally being a counselor to my mother from a young age. Um, and one of her, I mean, she was very compromised. Her own she had no had and has no emotional maturity. She literally has not graduated from childhood stages of emotional processing, right? So um one of the things that she would say very explicitly, she when she would get angry, particularly at me because she depended on me even more than she depended on my younger brother and sister, and she would say to me, you don't see me as a whole person. You don't see me as a woman. You just see me as a as only your mother, right? So the the projection and the reversal that yeah. comes out of that, right? And I believe that she felt that when she said that she was experiencing that feeling. She believed that that was the case. Of course, it's a very inappropriate way expectation to have from a child, um, but it, it's just so classic. And I and and I'll just. 
it's you what you said about communal narcissism and parentified children solidified something for me that i had not made a connection about before um and i i suspect that well there are many people out there like me you know when i when i talk about when i talk about these things um i i don't mean to propose to anybody that i had a unique experience of child abuse because i didn't uh there's nothing unique what you're about not special you're not no, special I'm not you're special. not entitled to your victimhood nope. no i used to think oh, i wow. was okay. i used to a yeah. lot i really did um but no i don't i don't think i'm entitled to it and they, <laughs> um but i got into communal narcissism i think now as a direct result of that experience mm. um I spent 20 years um, directing a nonprofit, an NGO, um, or, you know, as some Brits will say, a campaigning organization um, that was, uh, it was a, a nonprofit called Funeral Consumers Alliance. And its mission was to protect people from being financially exploited in the very expensive American funeral and burial transaction. Because in our country, it's it's a $20 billion a year industry burying the dead. There's a lot of opportunity for unscrupulous retailers to take advantage of people who are in an emotionally compromised state, right? So that is a real structural problem, right? Yes. But um, so I spent 20 years there and there's a, a, I, my, how I saw my job was very different in the last five or six years from the first 15 years that I was there. Um, I did see myself as a savior to the consumers who called me with complaints or who said, I cannot afford to bury my mother. Uh, you know, it's anything from the funeral home lied to us or the funeral home denied us the right to, to buy a less expensive casket all the way up to, they actually stole my grandmother's money from a prepaid funeral account. I've heard everything, whatever it was that came to me. Um, I did see myself as a savior and I saw myself as as a representative of the only organization that could ever put things right for people. As a result of this, and this was about my own ego, I did not realize it at the time, but it was about fulfilling my own emotional needs. I needed to save these people. I needed to make it right. I needed to make them whole. Because that was so overriding, I sided too easily with people who complained and made too easy an enemy out of a funeral director I did not know, right? Mm. Over time, as my political views and my personal emotional views began to shift, and also in conjunction with, for the first time, putting boundaries in my family, pushing my mother actually out of my life so that I was no mm. longer marinating um, in that problem, I realized that, you know, there were a lot of people who really, a lot of these people wanted a savior too. And they wanted someone to tell them they'd made no mistakes. Yep. They had no responsibility for it. And I was right there to do it. You know, oh, you poor thing, da, 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 da. I made a lot of mistakes that way. And I don't think I actually helped a lot of the people in the beginning that I thought I was helping. And right. and I'm betting there are a lot of people who've been in situations like that. Yeah. Oh, great story, Justin. And so great that you're like able to, uh, you know, be aware of that power dynamic that you are in and um the desire to you're just kind of reenacting you know your role that's all i was doing yep. <laughs> you're just being you you're just doing you um and what you said about you know looking for a savior i think many of us this is the narcissism we're looking to be saved or we're looking to be the savior because yeah. uh you know this is this is 
we need something to fill that hole. I think there's a hole of self-worth, shame that we sit with. Um, and again, I'm generalizing, I'm sharing from my own experience as well. Um, and the, you know, we're always looking for that authority figure to give us the nurturing and the soothing and the protection and the security that we're, we're we all need. That we're still in a child, still us as a child, that child's still inside us. So um, until we start to recognize neither of these things are realistic because both of the, both of these needs uh, to be saved or the savior puts me in situations where I, I'm either exploiting someone or I'm being exploited by someone. And yeah. this is the interpersonal narcissism. It's like, we need to break out of these cycles and stop needing somebody to look after me. I'm that person. I have to learn to get better at doing that as well as using the supports that I have in my life, not to save me, but to help me meet my needs or help me, um, you know, achieve what I'm, I'm wanting again, without exploiting them in the process. That's hard work because it is overriding this hardwiring, this programming from our childhood. Um, you know, so that's that's the hacking narcissism stuff that I talk about. And this is this is why this I think as I'm having this conversation with you, I've talked to a lot of people who are conversant with narcissistic relationship patterns, but there's something about you, Natalie. There's something about your approach I get more light bulb moments with you than I get with a lot of other people. And I think it's because I, I think it's, I think it's your, there's something about the way you explain this and that just makes it very clear to me that you make it harder. You make it harder for me to say that one's the narcissist and that one's the victim. Yes. And, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um and my initial emotional disposition is to resist that, right? Because it's much more comfortable to see the world in black and white. Uh but yes, but yet that's why I keep I'm that's I see your notes on Substack, I see your essays, and I'm like, boy, she's she's just opened my eyes to something I've been wondering about for a long time. It's really valuable what you do. It's really, really valuable to you. me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I guess if you're part of a group of people or you're, you see yourself as someone who is responsible, I'm responsible for my fate, my destiny, maybe not entirely, um, whether or not you believe in free will, either way, you're the only one who's in control of your actions. We can keep looking at others, hoping, expecting, willing that they would change so that I am comfortable, that I, you know, they could help maintain my level of comfort. So I avoid the discomfort of from their, dealing with their behavior, but we know that's not going to work. And we, we contribute to all our interactions unconsciously most of the time. So um, yeah, in order for us to change things so that we have some more fulfilling, meaningful, loving, uh, you know, desirable relationships, we've got to get over ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. We really do. We've gone for about an hour here. You've been very generous with your time. I'm. I want to throw a couple things out before we close up. Um, one, I hope we can do this again because I decided to have this initial conversation with you without a lot of prep, um, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm and I'm glad I did um, because it it leads to a different kind of conversation than one where you're really prepared and you have a schedule. Um, but I can also imagine I'd like to have a conversation with you in the future where maybe we can think about some some very practical scenarios 
that -hmm. people find themselves in, in professional and interpersonal group dynamics that where we can go through these things step by step and identify roles and identify pitfalls. Um, Because I, I do actually, I love to give I love to give viewers and listeners real concrete stuff that they can bank on and they can they can say, I'm going to make this work for me or I'm going to test this out. So I hope we can do that in the future. But before we let you go, um, do you have um, again, Natalie's Substack, which you all should be reading and subscribing to, is called Hacking Narcissism. Um, Can you suggest for listeners um, a couple of go to kernel articles or pieces you've written in any format somewhere that you think are are the best entree into the into what you would like people to be thinking about yes thanks josh um so i have an article uh about narcissism and narcissistic behavior that's the starting point go there first and there are links to other pieces because i talk about the different narcissisms um that we can all enter into at different times and in different relationships. And they link to other articles that focus on that narcissism. So like, you know, the malignant narcissism or the covert narcissism Mm -hmm. or the social injustice warrior, which really is a communal narcissism. Um, So that that's a starting point. Another one is understanding shame, shame uh, as not the enemy, but shame as your ally, because as I mentioned in this chat, shame underpins all these behaviors, our tendency to go into these reactive states is because our shame is triggered. And until we can get a handle on sitting in the discomfort of shame, um, we're just going to keep replaying these different, you know, parent-child weird dynamics with people that we don't need to do that with. Um, So narcissism and shame, and that will get you, that will start your journey. Fantastic. Natalie Martinek, thank you very, very much for spending your time with us, especially so early. Uh, listeners, you don't know this. Well, yeah, you do. I'm probably the only one who forgets this all the time. It's actually tomorrow in Natalie world. <laughs> in the future. On, a, on a Sunday evening, but she's actually in the future um, and got up to be on microphone with me at seven in the morning. So please be appreciative of that uh, because I wouldn't do it for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, thanks very much for your time. We'll talk again. Yes. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, everyone.